Welcome to Fresno's Best Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today, I have Lauren Hubbard on the show. Lauren is running for California's 22nd Congressional District, comprising portions of Fresno and Tulare counties. Having worked in various capacities for the government, Lauren has a unique perspective he wants to share and utilize as a congressional representative for this area. Please enjoy my conversation with Lauren Hubbard and Baker will take us there. Religion, culture, art, music, show some respect to the best little city left in the U.S. Fresno's best. Fresno's best. Uh, so, Lauren, where do you like to eat in Fresno? Um, you know, ah, man, I'm a big foodie. And so my wife and I, on date night, we like to go to Apex Kitchen as our place. I had uh, one of my fraternity brothers was a, a, a bartender there for a long time, and he kind of turned us on to it. But the food is fantastic. And what we've kind of been doing during this, uh, it started during the pandemic, was going to these, like, Fresno street eats. Mm. And the collective food trucks that we have in this area are phenomenal. But one that I was actually really surprised to to be turned on to that is now one of my favorites is actually Planet Vegan. Oh. I'm not a vegan. Uh, I like my meat. <laughs> I like my cheese. Uh, but their Galaxy Fries, which is like made with, with vegan cheese, I assume, and, and meat products, um, are out of this world. Yeah. Well, it feels like what's best for all of us, even those of us that eat meat, is to start to make our diets a little bit more balanced. And so when we eat meat, like go ham, you know, no pun intended. Um, but uh, when we don't, you know, finding food for those of us who were raised on meat for almost every meal, it could be a little challenging not to. So I, I think a lot of people need to try this, uh, try some of these alternative things. I've kind of come around to some things. Um, but some things are hard for people. I think the hardest one is cheese. You know, a lot of the fake cheeses are tough. Yeah. It just, it's, it's gotta just taste good for me. I can like close my eyes and, you know, imagine I'm eating anything. Um, you know, we did a, a no meat November last mm. November. So we were at Trader Joe's every week picking out these recipes and, you know, kind of found substitutes like jackfruit where you can make pulled pork sandwiches and, not use pork and it still tastes pretty much the same, but you're right. Cheese is one of those. I have not found a good substitute for cheese. Yeah. And maybe the solution is not to, you know, not to replace something, but see something as, you know, to use quasi religious language, a little bit more sacred. So you don't use it continually, you know, maybe that's what it is. I don't know. Find Find a balance. Exactly. Well, so I, I did kind of a little bit of reading uh, just about your background, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about uh, growing up first, to kind of set the stage for how you think about uh, what uh, your relationship to government, uh, how people should be helped. Um, and it seems pretty clear that your mother was a formative influence in kind of setting you on a path. Um, can you talk a little bit about the work that she did, what you saw her do, and focus specifically, I guess, on uh, what she did as a union rep and how that has influenced the way you see 
uh, work, labor, and those kinds of things. Because, you know, being a representative, you're going to represent uh, a lot of people, you know, a lot of different kinds of work in the Valley and people that are often uh, don't have the workers' protections that uh, they need. Yeah. So my, my mother, I, I always talk about her being like my hero and like one of the like quintessential American, right? Is, is, you know, you have a family and you do whatever you need to do to help your family succeed. And so while we were uh, you know, going to school during, she was working during the day, she um, ended up going to junior college at night and, and becoming a, a CNA. And, um, so uh, like a certified nurse assistant, pretty much. And so uh, she got a, a job at a hospital down in Bakersfield and, um, you know, was doing doing that work. And, and in doing that work, she got turned on to SEIU, the United Health Workers, um, and became a union rep and, and you know, would talk about it all the time in our house when this vote was coming up or this person needed protections or, you know, this individual person was, was, you know, being pressured to do uh, overtime when they really, you know, did not have to, and then not being paid for it, like, like doing stuff on, on company time, but Hey, we're a family here. Right. And it seems to be only a family when it's something that inconveniences you. Um, and so it really kind of shaped my, my view of, of the government and, and politicians as, you know, playing as a referee um, in, in keeping our systems balanced and fair. And so much of uh, questions around politicians become, you know, what are you going to do? What, what legislation are you going to enact to create jobs? What are you going to do to create jobs? And um, you know, coming from this union background, my belief is that, you know, yes, jobs are important. I don't think that necessarily politicians um, create jobs. Um, I think that, you know, as a politician, my focus should be on, on growing the wages and benefits of workers that, that exist. And yes, we can make, you know, an environment where it is, where jobs can be created. But I think what most people want is 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 for politicians to to maintain this fair playing field where people have opportunity, where opportunity for all um, comes in. And I think you know unions to me are are you know very American. They're almost as American as apple pie. The, you know, a collection of individuals that come together to bargain and and use what skills they have to bargain for better wages for a better living is the definition of, of America in the pursuit of happiness. Um, and so being around that as a, as a young kid and getting that sense of, of, you know, America being about a land of opportunity for all and freedom for all, um, you know, has really kind of focused me in this campaign but also in just my career choices of, of, of being in the public service. Um, I was a union member for SEIU for a number of years when I worked at the county and at the state level. Um, and I just think that, you know, if we are going to have a society where we have equal opportunity, we can't have equal opportunity if we don't have equal treatment. And so, 
uh, unions help fill in that gap to protect individuals in, in when they're going up against uh, larger economic forces. And I think that is, you know, something that's quintessentially American. Yeah, I think, you know, I think a challenge, you know, and I, I, I agree with you and I am, I am a school teacher. So I am, <laughs> I am, uh, you know, I am part of a union and unions bargain for my vacation time. They bargain for my benefits. And I work in Madeira Unified and in Madeira Unified, uh, we have amazing benefits such that uh, my wife who works in the prison system, um, she got off her, her prison system plan to join my plan. Um, and I wouldn't have these amazing benefits unless a union had uh, negotiated on my behalf and worked hard um, to, to, to accrue better benefits. I will say, and this is my one question to you to kind of follow up on the union question is um, I looked it up and uh, for, since 2000, uh, the number of people that were part of unions in the United States, so these are workers 16 and older, um, has gone down 3%. You know, 13% of the working population was part of a union in 2000. It's down to 10%. Uh, we can look at numbers over the 20th century. They're much more dramatic. But it seems like work is maybe moving away from the union. And I know that, you know, people on the other side of the aisle would, would uh, celebrate that. Um, do you see uh, unions as part of the future of the American workforce, or is this some kind of? It was a good concept, and it, you know, it 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 worked for uh, labor's benefit, but maybe it's just not is outdated in the twenty first century. Well, I don't know if it's it's necessarily outdated. I think with, with the data shows us in what's reflected in reality here is that you know a lot of jobs are not. Um, are not uh, regular regular scheduled jobs. I guess with, they're more gig workers. So we have a, a larger gig economy where, where workers aren't getting benefits at all. But what we've seen in the trend uh, lately is that these these larger corporations are now having to, to, to tackle with their employees wanting to get a union. So Starbucks now you know, has, has uh, union stores. Uh, Amazon recently has gone through uh, uh, a situation where they, you know, were seen as negotiating in bad faith in, in the attempt for the workers there to get a union. Um, so I think that going forward, I think the unions are definitely going to be um, a part of rebuilding the middle class in America. They were fundamental in us building the middle class to begin with the first time around. And I just think that if we are going to have a, a economic system that is based on rules and fairness. We can't have people that are, you know, having the rich and the powerful lord over the middle class and the working class. We have to ensure that lower level jobs provide a livable wage and that the middle class jobs that we have are able to support a middle class standard of living. And I think that unions at their, at their core do three things is set a floor for wages for, for workers, uh, which is fundamental. Um, you know, they, they negotiate benefits for workers, which now is getting into the national, national discussion around 
sick leave and paid family leave and all these other things. Um, and really, they protect the, the, the right of people to have a fair share of the profits that they create. I think that's, you know, America, we're not about uh, demonizing the rich, but we want to make sure that people get a fair share of the profits that they create. Yeah. And I, I, you know, I think the thing that people forget is that, um, you know, when a lot of the deunionization happened and particularly in the 1980s um, and then other periods of time in the nineties as well as, you know, after NAFTA and different things um, that uh, you know, that's when we had this big transition to dual income households, you know, the, you know, where you have two people working uh, in order to support a family. Whereas before that, you know, it might've been possible otherwise. Um, and so that, so essentially we've, <laughs> you know, we've added more and more people to the workforce to compensate for the wages lost um, through deunionization. And I, and I think that's a story that you know, people don't want to say out loud because that's, you know, it just kind of shows that, <laughs> you know, that money went somewhere. Um, <laughs> so let's, uh, let's talk about your work at the county now. Um, I'm very interested in talking about some of the challenges and opportunities with different programs you worked at in the county. You know, obviously, if you're um, elected to represent this county, um, there's, you know, there's a lot of government programs that provide assistance to people. Um, and the two I wanted to talk about are uh, CalFresh and Medi-Cal. So let's, let's start with CalFresh. I'd like to focus there. Um, for people that don't know, because they're not on these programs and don't know anyone on these programs, what is CalFresh um, and what service does it provide? And are there challenges that you saw with it when you worked at County? Well, so CalFresh is the, the food stamp program for the state of California. We like to put our, our, our own stamp on on our social programs that um, you know are funded by uh, you know national dollars, but um, CalFresh has done the job of getting people food. That's what it was created for. A lot of people forget that you know it was a Republican and Bob Dole and a Democrat and Jim McGovern that created the food stamp pro program. And it was not uh, this big, you know, gotcha grab bag for just like, uh, you know, the idea of welfare creams and all that wasn't created yet. It was it was to address the the people in our country that are um, going hungry, and especially here in 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 Fresno, I just find it a I, I don't even know the word to describe my disappointment in this, this statistic, the fact that we could add $100 a food stamps benefits, but if they don't have the gas to cook food on, if they don't have a pot to cook food on, you know, they're not, you, you can only eat so much ramen, you know? And so that's the kind of the, the, the problems, the issues is I could have food stamps and the, if the goal is to make sure I don't go hungry, um, I think that people should be able to meals with those dollars because what's happening now is and what we've seen is, you know, a lot of times um, people are going to get what they need and, um, you know, they're, they're, if you block them from using it this way, they find other ways to, to do stuff. 
Um, so a lot of, I won't say a lot, but they're food stamps for cash. That happens. That's a, that's a the problem that we have that we have to address. And I think part of it is because, you know, they aren't allowed to, to go to McDonald's and get a $2 cheeseburger or uh, a $5 hot and ready from uh, Little Caesars. And not that those meals aren't the best, but just an example of, if, you know, if I'm living on the streets and I don't have a microwave, what good is, is you know, being able to buy chicken? I don't have a place to cook it. So there's some of that reality that I think we need to, to, to focus on in that program and, and just, um, you know, really wanted to just talk about the, the, the vision of, of, of social benefits in California and, and in this country. Because as a society, we've, you know, we have a responsibility to protect people in our communities. And um, there are people that are vulnerable who can't meet their own basic needs. And so that is why I think the food stamp program is efficient in the fact that it is getting people access to food i just think we need to do a, a better way uh, or a, a better job of making sure that they have the other resources they need to actually get the full benefit of that program you know and i i agree with you because i think you know basically i mean what it really is 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 a way f- to sell this to people that are skeptical of welfare benefits by saying, Oh, look, we're just giving them food. You know, we're not giving them just money. And you can even look at what happened to, you know, to, you know, one of the up and coming great uh, democratic leaders in California, Michael Tubbs, when he tried to do UBI uh, in Stockton and he had this huge pushback. I mean, a lot of it was some like weird Facebook terrorism going on. (laughs) I don't exactly know. I've heard stories. Um, but do you, do you think UBI is just too much of like a hot potato? Like you can't, you can't just, you can't just say, I mean, do you think we can just say out loud, we're just going to get people money? Cause clearly what you were leading at and what you're saying right there is that the easiest way to help people is given the most flexible currency so they can actually choose what they need, but is it too hot to handle to just give them money? You know, you, you bring up a good point with Michael Stubbs and, and the city of Stockton doing the UBI um, experiment and, and other cities and places have experimented with UBI. And I personally think that uh, what we found in this pandemic is when you give poor people money, um, you know, you tend to see poverty rates decline. And the argument that uh, when it comes to things like taxes and and conservative argument is, you know, we think you know how to spend your money better than the government does. Well, hey, how about we give people money so they can spend it in their best way? Doesn't seem to to match. But I, I just think that there's this mentality of a lot of people that if somebody else is getting something, that means they're getting something taken away. And we have we live in this kind of zero sum society where somebody can't get something that they need because, well, what about, what about me? And I just, you know, I, I, I don't think that I, I, I don't think that it's too hot to handle. Uh, I just think that, um, 
at the moment, the politics of it, we have not done a good job of, of explaining what UBI is and how it would benefit the whole, the collective, all of us to have people not be on the streets, uh, to have people that are not hungry. And so um, you know, the same thing that I talk about when I talk about Fresno's uh, unhoused population in the sense that, you know, when I'm talking to a conservative crowd, I highlight the dollars of what it's costing our community to have homeless people. And something around the, the $25,000 to $45,000 range per person uh, on the streets is what the government spends. And that's directly out of our budget. So I just think that if we can spend that money up front and have better outcomes, uh, people will not be as, it won't be as hot potato of an issue we just got to do a better job of explaining what it is and going out and selling that message. Yeah, I guess it just depends on where you want to spend your money. And that's, you know, when I talk to more conservative folks, I have a similar kind of conversation. It's like, would you either spend it on the front end or the back end? Because you're going to spend it one way or another. Do you want to spend it at the emergency room or do you want to spend it uh, getting insurance for people? I mean, because they're you're going to spend it one way or another. Um, and I think people, you know, for some reason, um, you know, uh, people view kind of the back end as like, oh, well, you made your choice. Uh, you know, you're doing it on the back end. You made your choice, and it's 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 like I I, I get that, but you know, we 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 end up spending a lot more if we spend it on the back end. You know, if you're if you're you know if you're not helping people, they're going to resort to things like crime, or you know, kids are going to uh, be suffering. You know, I work in a public school. I am you know I am surrounded by kids that are you know suffering. Uh, because of the situations of their families, because of their parents. And we have these enormous social apparatus uh, at our school to support all of these kids struggling with things. And that's, you know, that's salaries, insurance, benefits. I mean, great, they've got jobs. But really, like when you, ab when you actually kind of de-ideologically or, or, or remove the ideology from it, actually talk about dollars and cents, I think it makes sense to people. Problem is that they just, as soon as you start talking about preventative, they're like, well... Do they deserve that? You know what I mean? Right. There's an element of deserving. And, and just, and we had the conversation earlier today. My wife is a registered nurse at Clovis High School. Um, and a big shout out to the school psychologist who uh, voted to join ACE, the, the Clovis Unified uh, Union out there. But, you know, we talked about the need of, of, of social workers in schools because a lot, they specialize in getting people um, hooked up to programs that they need and how, how important it is to have the resources, to be connected to the resources and the things that you need. Um, and I just think we would have, you know, just, just look at the data, all the stuff that you said, we wouldn't need to talk about uh, these, have these national conversations about defunding the police and, and this and that if we, follow the data that tells, you know, statistics tell us when a person has gotten a quality education, there's less crime. When people have jobs with livable wages, there's less crime. When people are hooked up to the resources and, and the, the benefits that they deserve, or I don't say deserve, but that they need, there's less crime. Less crime is good for police. Um, so all, a lot of these issues are, are interconnected and, and um, you're absolutely right. Well, 
And so kind of pivoting now to talking about, you've managed to find your way into two different jobs that, uh, you know, are the two cruxes of our problems or difficulties or challenges in the Central Valley. So let's, let's talk about water for a second. Um, this, this is obviously, you know, as existential of an issue as uh, the poverty issue we were just talking about. Um, and it has some of the similar kind of ideological issues, you know, about, you know, fairness and equality, distribution, all those kinds of things. Um, so can you talk a little bit about the work you do right now? And then uh, what what is your vision for a sustainable water future for the Central Valley? I mean, a lot of the water is used by ag here, you know, I mean, obviously, we all have enough water to drink every day. But, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a drought, and we haven't had as much, you know, rain to be honest, uh, we, you know, when it, you know, when it started, they tricked the, you know, the weather gods tricked us in the fall, you know, we got all that good rain to begin with, but now we haven't had rain in, I don't know, coming on two months and, or maybe it's less, I don't know. It feels long. Um, so anyway, that was a long winded way of saying, let's talk about water for a minute. So let's start with what work you do. Yeah, so I'm an operations manager at the Water Resources Control Board, and one of the things that we are focused on is is water quality and sustainability for the beneficial uses of water for ourselves and for posterity. Um, and what we've seen, you know, you hit the nail on the head is is that you know California we use about six million acre feet of water per year, and it's not sustainable in its current form. Um, and so there are things that are starting to be done uh, now that, that I think that, you know, there's federal, federal investment in, in, in partnerships with the state of California as far as our, our water plan. Um, because for the first time ever since this water treaty that dates back to 1879, for water from the Colorado, where we had to shut off that water supply to uh, certain certain groups of, of, of states that joined the treaty for agreement after 1879, um, you know, it's unprecedented. And I think just California in and of itself as a, as a land mass is just, you know, it's the hydrological extremes. And all the water is in the north, but all the people live in the south. And in between, you have the you know, mountains. We got red with forests, and you know we have some of the driest deserts in North America. Um, and so we have these like extremes where areas you know have these are prone to floods, and others that are pro, you know, prone to drought. And the challenge is, you know, how do we build? reservoir systems responsibly and, and build these conveyance systems to store and move water throughout the state. Um, and, and that's a, a big challenge, but I think what we, my approach to water is something that we can, that we're doing at the state of California that I think we use federal dollars for and adapting programs that will help address our use of water. Um, so, so a simple thing such as like, you know, expanding um, efficient drip irrigation and giving federal dollars for farms to change over to 
uh, uh, drip irrigation versus flood irrigation or sprinkler irrigation that can save uh, millions of acre feet of water. Um, using gray water systems and, and houses and, and by gray water, what I mean by that is um, non-industrial wastewater. So when you flush your toilet, that all goes out, it gets cleaned up and then it goes out to, you know, to the sea, if you will. But if we could capture some of that water and use it to, um, you know, irrigate our, our lawns, water our lawns, using recycled water for landscape and crops. Um, if it was a system where um, the water that you use in your shower filled, recharged your toilet, you know, that just, and it's very simple things, but that is, is ways that we can use more water more efficiently. And there's already state programs that set aside dollars to do some of those things. And we can use federal dollars to help us along with that. So it's kind of a two pronged two-pronged issue where we have to increase their water storage. Not so much, uh, I don't think necessarily building more dams is the answer, but having more water storage and, and, and better conveyance systems to we can transport water throughout the state. Because I, I, I drove down to Bakersfield yesterday and I always see these signs about flushing water to the ocean, flushing water to the ocean. And it's just like, you don't understand the fact that a lot of the water comes from Northern California. It's pumped through the Delta. We hear the Delta all the time, but the Delta is a mix of salt water and fresh water, right? And that water goes through and it's pumped down to Southern California. Every now and again, you have to flush those systems because you can't grow a lot of things with salt water. Fun fact. So we got to flush those systems, but we also need, uh, more storage so we, that we don't, we're not at capacity in the north and have to flush those systems out. And so um, that's what we're kind of focused on as, as far as a state, as far as the water. Um, it's one of the, the big things that I, I think our, our previous representative missed was, you know, talking about our water quality issues. Our water quantity issues are well documented, but there are a lot of communities here in the Central Valley that because of, of historic uh, racist policies, quite frankly, that don't have clean water. They can't simply go to their sink, get a cup of water and drink it in the middle of the night. Places like East Sorosi, uh, Seville, uh, Matheny, Tracton, Tulare, those places are minority majority areas you know, migrant farm worker areas, they're not allowed to be hooked up to municipal systems because of quote unquote rate increases that would have to occur. Um, so they have, they're forced to drink water that we, the state of California has identified as unsafe. And, you know, these water companies uh, are still charging people water that they can't drink. So imagine paying a water bill and still having to go out and buy $100 worth of drinking water just so you can have that to brush your teeth. That's the reality of a lot of people in, in the Central Valley right now. 
That's wild. And I, you know, I, I know that water quality issue, even for us in the you know city is not that great. I mean, you know, you, yeah, I, my wife spent a long time uh, identifying the correct water filtration system that we had to get. And we, you know, they'll do, they'll come do those water tests, you know, those kind of those scams where they come to the door and they're like, I'll test your water for free. And then talk to you for three hours about why you need our whole house filtration system. And then I'll stare at you until you have to say me no to me five times until I eventually leave. Um, I've done that. I think I've done that twice now. I don't know how I got conned into it, but I, it's for a good reason because um, our water, you know, our water, <laughs> our water could be improved. And, you know, I, I won't say what district or what, where I was working before, but I for sure got one of those home water tests and went to a drinking fountain at the a school that I worked at a while ago, just to test the water to see what it was. And I was scared, you know, and I think, I think a lot of people, um, if they understood the water they're drinking and the quality of it would be scared. And I know that has to do with infrastructure, right? You have to replace pipes. You have to do all these things to make sure our quality water's quality, or you have to get filter systems. I will say, you know, to toot Madeira Unified's horn, just a second. Um, we do have these wonderful filter, those like, you know, like you have in the airport where you go and you like, you know, put it in and it tells you how many water bottles have been saved. Um, we have one of those in our school and it's wonderful, uh, but not everyone has those. And sadly, there's people drinking uh, lower quality water. Do you, un do you know um, if there are water quality issues that you can talk about in uh, Fresno City proper? Um, Fresno City proper is dealing with, with um, not so much drinking water issues, but, but we do a good job of partnering with other state agencies and the city when there's ever a situation of like a, a plume buildup. Um, a lot of, of dry cleaning areas have, have these uh, chemicals that sometimes get into uh, groundwater. We just had a cleanup um, at the Maxi Parks area, uh, community center area in Fresno. And that was like probably a testament to the system and, and working correctly, where there's partnerships between uh, you know, multiple state agencies and the city and coming up with a working plan to address it and fixing it uh, pretty quickly within a a month and a half and it wasn't so much as a, a danger it was it was kind of a you know from a, a old dry cleaners that was long since closed but you know they did test and found out oh hey there's you know five parts per million in, uh, in this thing and so it's you know it's technically within safe levels whatever that means but um you know, to have it be addressed and quickly addressed is, is, you know, the testament to the system working. And that's, you know, part of the, the, my job at the water resources control board is I, I'm also um, working on our, our racial equity and our outreach with disadvantaged communities. And a lot of these low income communities of color um, are particularly hard hit and, you know, they are, we seem to be the communities that are often exposed to polluted air and, and water because of oil and gas production and, and different waste sites. And, you know, in California, we do a, a great job of setting a high standard for controlling a lot of chemicals in our water. And I always see the signs of like go to like Texas or Florida. My sister lives in Florida and she's always talking about 
uh, how there's a sign for everything like, oh, chemicals. There's in California, they make a sign chemicals can be dangerous <laughs> in everywhere. But, um, you know, I think we do a good job of when it becomes a public danger, really stepping up and addressing it before it, it, it really grows to uh, be unmanageable. Let's uh, let's pivot to kind of our last conversation now, uh, or last bit of the conversation where we're talking about uh, Nunez seat, um, what what you would do differently. And let's start by talking about Nunez. Uh, he was there a long time. Um, he is a fixture, um, and he you know propelled himself onto the national stage by becoming so attached to Trump. Um, and now he's working for him. Uh, so clearly, you know, either that was, uh, uh, you know, kind of playing the long game and seeing life pass Congress, um, or it was just, you know, a fortunate benefit for him. Uh, but how do you think about uh, Devin's legacy from your perspective? Uh, obviously not the best legacy um, from your perspective, probably. Uh, but how do you think about it? And what, what, what would you do differently if you could... Uh, 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 take a seat and uh, represent this part of the Valley. You know, he was on Ray Appleton's show um, talking about his legacy and, and uh, having that conversation. And he highlighted the fact that he was able to um, bring the Central Valley's water issues to the national attention. Um, and I'm just kind of sitting here. It took him 18 years to do that, apparently. Um, and I could really do it in 18 minutes. There are issues that we have. And, and in, that same, in that same vein, he talked about, you know, not being beholden to his constituents, but to the people that voted for him. Um, and that is, to me, is his most uh, egregious uh, failure, is that um, you know, as a representative, you are beholden to your constituents. I may not have voted for you, but I'm your constituent. And so one of the things that I've tried to do just now is, is be uh, available to people and be accessible to people. And constituent services is the primary function of a representative. And um, I expect my expectations for a representative uh, are not to necessarily vote in the way that I want them to, but to come back and explain that vote to me. And, and I could either say, you know what? Disagree with you on this one. I understand why you made it. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm gonna, I'm gonna work with, uh, I'm still, I like you, but I understand now. Or it's, you know, that vote was unforgivable and I'm not gonna vote for you next time. That's, that's, you know, the reason we don't have term limits is because people are supposed to, your, your constituents are supposed to be the, the term limits. And when you are um, advocating for them, you're making votes and you're coming back and being held responsible by them, you don't get voted back. And I think that's one of the reasons why he uh, left to, to run Trump's social media empire with no executive experience, no job training on anything other than being a congressman, um, is because he saw the writing on the wall that there was a growing presence. It, it had been growing for 18 years. People have been getting fed up, hadn't had a, a, a public 
um, form in, in over a decade, um, he was getting ready to go. And I think that, you know, the slate of, of politicians that are running to replace him, they just did a, a forum the other day and their issues are ones that, you know, Devin would probably be running on if he was still running. And it was like, you know, supporting Trump's reelection bid and wanting to defund schools that teach critical race theory and, you know, pass these, these uh, strict voter ID laws. And all those things are not concerns of the people of the Central Valley. I've yet you to know. meet a parent that can explain to me what critical race theory is. I'm still waiting. I, I you know, <laughs> my door is always open. Once someone figures it out, I'd love for them to explain it to me. Uh, but that's a whole different subject. Continue, please. <laughs> you know, so you, you, Devin Nunes, great. He's gone. I'm, I'm happy. But he, his, his ideology, his policies are still running and they're still on the ballot. And that's what I think most people need to, need to be aware of and be concerned with. Yeah. And what would you do different if you were elected? I think my, my policy issues, my policy concerns are, are ones that are um, beneficial to the people of the Central Valley. So uh, one thing that is, is top of my list that I think we can, we can knock out of the park right now um, is, is helping our unhoused community and those that are in danger of falling in to losing housing. So uh, there's a real big appetite on, on Capitol Hill right now to pass uh, legislation. I know Build Back Better may not be the, the full legislation, may not be there, but some parts of it certainly can be passed in this, in this upcoming legislative uh, period. Um, so more money, Section 8 and housing assistance is a successful program in preventing people from going homeless. There's just... It's so successful that the wait list for it is 20 to 24 months. And so we can definitely boost the amount of funding that goes to a program like that to where people, more people qualify for these housing vouchers so that they're not going homeless. Uh, you know, homeless assistance is getting $29 billion. Uh, we can make sure that people in the Central Valley get some of that funding. Um, and I'm not sorry to interrupt, but on that note, uh, how, what's your perspective on, uh, you know, our, our new mayor, uh, Jerry Dyer, has uh, has made that kind of a centerpiece of what he's been doing. Uh, how do you view what he's doing? Is he kind of because to me, it seems to go back to our conversation before about front end and back end. Seems like a lot of the focus is on the back end. Yes, it is on the back end. And, you know, if I was running for city council, this would be a different kind of conversation, especially because the city of Fresno, um, I think I just read it, the Community Alliance has gotten a billion dollars for this specific program over the course of the last uh, five years. And to me, we need to make sure that uh, as a city that we're using these dollars more efficiently because a lot of these, these funds are going to places um, and then we're just saying, oh, hey, we gave, we gave $20 million to Paparello House. 
but on the back end of it, Pavarello House, if you don't meet certain criteria, you're not getting housed. So we can give them an extra $20 million. That doesn't mean we helped an X, X amount more people. Um, and so I think we just need to use that money more efficiently and make sure that we're monitoring those dollars more efficiently because that kind of stuff is happening. And as anybody who's a, a homeless advocate will tell you in Fresno and across this country is uh, uh, any plan to address homelessness that doesn't have a housing first model is going to fail. If you don't have a place to stay, my Maslow's hierarchy needs, if I don't know where I'm staying, I cannot address other problems that we have in this area. Fresno, we have a big uh, methamphetamine and heroin addiction problem. Those issues that we have with that are not going to be helped with more people on the street. And it, telling people, if you have a drug addiction, you can't stay here, they're not going to stay there. <laughs> and so we have the problem is this vicious cycle that continues. But to have a housing first model to say that we're going to get people off the streets and then have resources available to them afterwards, the whole part about this is building trust. It may not happen on the first night, may not happen on the second night, may not happen in the first month, the sixth month. But eventually those people that want to be back in society We'll seek out those resources that they're next to. And then, then from there, we got them. And then we can start to make the plan to get back into them, back into society. But a lot of the resources and focuses that focus that we have in addressing our homeless issue go to the uh, something like 65% of the resources that we spend on, on, on homelessness go to the 15% of the population that is chronically homeless. And yes, they're the worst case scenarios, but there's a lot of people in the interim that, you know, the, the mother who is leaving her abusive husband, mm -hmm. she's now homeless, but she's not in a spot where she's like that far gone from society. I don't want to say gone but you know you know what i mean yeah well, and, and the definitions right yeah. the, the definitions of what homeless is too i remember we were have when i lived in los angeles they were having these discussions about whether you should classify someone that's uh, families that are living in a garage as homeless you know and there's all these kind of like definitional things that we have. And I think we focus particularly dire focuses on the kind of the 15% you're describing because of the eyesore issue. You know, I think that's the core of it. Um, people just are like, I don't want to look at that when I drive my car down the 41. And I, I, you know, I, I, you know, I don't know whether that's just because they feel guilty looking at someone that's in a different situation as they drive their Lexus to work or whatever it is. Uh, but like, good. I'm glad you feel guilty because, you know, we're in this yeah. together. Uh, and yes, maybe yeah, that part of the consciousness that clicks on there with that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one, one more question on this before we go to books um, is um, we're kind of uh, talking about, you know, uh, the, the, t the tension and the stresses that Fresno has. Um, and the difficulties and challenges, but let's talk a little bit about like what your hope is for this area. And it includes more than Fresno, of course, but like, you know, we're kind of 
focused on that at this moment. Um, but the Fresno area generally, which I include a lot, kind of the outlying Selma and all the outlying areas around it. Uh, what's your what's your economic vision for Fresno? You know, I know that there's a lot of discussion about you know, ag becoming more, uh, you know, automated, you know, and uh, a lot of these jobs, you know, kind of going away. And there's, you know, there is a lot of people that uh, are here that are really dependent on government benefits that, you know, we would want there to be a thriving economy that they can jump into. Um, so what is, what is your vision for, uh, for the future of Fresno in, in that respect? Yeah, I, I, I think that Fresno is, especially the Central Valley, this area of the Central Valley, is really uniquely positioned to, if we wanted to be a, a, a leader in, in almost every industry, we can do it from here. We're close enough to the big areas of San Francisco, Los Angeles, um, but we also have the agricultural uh, powerhouse that is here. Um, and but the, you know, with, that, with that being said, agriculture is like the fifth largest industry uh, in terms of jobs in in Fresno, in the Fresno area, with um, you know service work being number one, but I think we have the infrastructure that's there. Um, I, I am a product of the Cal State University system. Uh, I went to Fresno State, and I have got to tell you, my wife went to um, Fresno City before she went to Fresno State to get her um, bachelor's in science and nursing. Um, we have a great educational infrastructure set up with, with Madera Community College, uh, Clovis Community College, Fresno City College, Reedley College, and then on to having um, you know, Fresno State, where we could educate a lot of people, not only in terms of you know, getting those, those uh, STEM degrees, which everyone, you know, we all want to have, but in getting those vocational trainings we could be a powerhouse and so I, I would just like to see us focus on on programs that are getting people um into the educational system and whatever they decide to pursue because to me the american dream is you know i i understand that we live in an individualistic society um, and individualism has, is both our greatest strength and our greatest weakness, in my opinion. But, um, you know, the American dream is just this, this, it's basically a prayer and this, this hope that every individual in our, in our country is given a fair chance to build a successful life in whatever way they seem fit. And I think we have the, the raw materials here in the Central Valley that if you wanted to, to your dream was, hey, I'm going to be the, the, the best uh, mechanic. We have the, uh, the facilities where you can get that training and go on to be that. We have the marketplace for it. Um, so I think that's you know, what our, our, our focus should be is, is not only the, the, the people that you know, want to be tech millionaires and, and, and all that, but the, the kid that grows up selling newspaper is going on to be the publisher or the mom like myself, the mom that goes to night school, she's working, goes to night school and then, you know, can be the manager. Um, and should we, if we, if we are able to tap into those opportunities, give more opportunities to people uh, here, 
that we are going to be the bee's knees, if I could steal a phrase from the 40s. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> All right, well, let's close up with books. Um, we always close with books. Uh, what are two or three book recommendations you'd give, uh, either books that are important to you or what you've been reading recently? Ah, man. So the I, I have two. Okay. Uh, one that I'm kind of reading just to have a deeper understanding is um, Stephanie Skelton's The, the Deficit Myth. And this like macroeconomic outlook on on the way that government can can manipulate our our monetary policy, and it's a it's a it's a very deep book, but it's 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 really good. <laughs> um, but the one that I, I started actually um, on Tuesday was uh, the fire the fire next time which is uh, James Baldwin um, just reading for it's Black History Month. So I try to read a, a Black artist. <laughs> um, and, and that one so far has been just phenomenal. Um, I, I don't think there's a better, a better writer uh, in terms of prose than, than James Baldwin. Um, and so those two are ones I would highly recommend. Is the f- fire next time? I it's been a while since I read. That's the one where it's like a it's like a letter to uh, a nephew yeah. or something or something like that. Isn't yes. that right? Okay, all right. Well, um, let's close by talking about what's next for you. Do you have some events coming up? And can you talk a little bit about uh, what the elections go? Because it's a special election, so it's going to be uh, you know held on a different day than people are used to having elections on. So can you just kind of talk about what? What's going on with you and then uh, what to expect from the election? Yeah, so I, I'm running in this special election to replace Devin Nunes, and it's uh, going to be held April 5th. Um, and so get out and vote because everybody needs to understand that this special election is going to set the tone for 2022. There's no other other elections going on until we get to the, the general election and some of these primaries in other states, but this is the election that's going to set the tone um, for, for messaging going into 2022. And, and it's my hope that we um, are able to have uh, the kind of turnout and, and uh, the kind of involvement that I think people everywhere need to see um, to show that, you know, democracy is not dead and that we, still are going to exercise our vote. So um, if you would like to, you can go to our website at uh, www.laurenhubbard.com. There we have a whole slew of of, uh, policy proposals and and our our event schedule is going to be up there. I think we're having an event on September or February 19th. Uh, we're having just kind of a, a picnic and canvas event. Um, if you want to come out for the picnic, I do throw down. I, I, I have been told that I am the best tri-tip griller. Ooh. Probably I'm the best tri-tip griller this side of the Mississippi. People are saying. Uh, that's my terrible Trump impression. <laughs> 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 yeah, we're having a, a barbecue and, and, and picnic on um, February 19th. So come on out and uh, hope to see you there.
Awesome. Well, this has been a lot of fun. Um, good luck with everything. And we'll be for sure watching. It's uh, it's an exciting thing. Honestly, you know, it's just, it's so glorious to say goodbye to Devin. Uh, you know, it's been, it's been wonderful. Um, see you later. Have fun in Florida. Uh, we're going to stay here and continue to grind it out in the Valley uh, while you golf. So uh, see ya. That's all I got to say at this point. Um, I guess I've made my politics clear. So anyway, thanks for talking with me, Lauren. Fresno's best. All right. Thanks for listening, folks. As always, you can support this podcast by leaving us a rating interview or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash Fresno's best. We'll see you next time.